0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. John Patton. So I guess starting off, why is it that we do the missionary biographies um, as we're going through? um, And... I reminded so everyone know. Well, most people know First Corinthians ten thirty one. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then it says, "Give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks." or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that me that they may be saved. And then First Corinthians eleven one says, "Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ." And so that's obviously the Apostle Paul speaking. But we look at men and women who have gone before us. Who imitate Christ, and we want to learn about them, study them, um, read about their lives um, in hopes that we can be encouraged to, hey, it's not just Christ that is able to do this, or the Apostle Paul, who's like way beyond this, but mere men and women um, by the grace of God can walk with the Lord. And so that's kind of why we are doing this study. And so I chose John Patton, uh, one, because he has a really good first name. Um, so Kayla Patton and I were actually duking it out, and I won, so I was able to preach on or teach on John Patton. Um, but I actually, when I was at um, Orlando Project, so I was involved with Campus Outreach when I was in college in an Orlando project. Um, we had some short missionary biographies that we had read, and John Patton was one of them, and I rem- he's, I think, the only one that I remember. So um, I knew I was excited about it when I studied it, and so um, I got to... Uh, when John Patton came up, I was definitely excited about teaching on him. So the majority of my information came from his autobiography. Um, John Patton, he was a missionary to the New Hebrides. And so it's a very big book. Um, It was really, really good, though. And I hope you can see here how good it was based on what I'm kind of talking about. So um, that's where we're going. Do I click on that? Mm. You do? But my laser point works, right? No. Do I? Oh, okay, we're good. Can you go to the next slide then? That'd be great. Awesome. Maybe. Nice, okay, cool. So, um, one thing about this, I guess, even before I begin is I don't want this just to be a history lesson of, hey, here's John Patton, here's when he was born, he did some stuff, and then he died, and there's a quiz next week. Like, we have that, well, the young students in here have those in class right now, and so I don't want it to be a history lesson, but I want it to be more of looking at his life and just the excitement that um, that I got when I was reading him, um, and I hope that that kind of comes out again in this talk. So. Brief history lesson, he was born in Scotland, May 24th, 1824, to James and Janet Patton. And in his biography, he talks about both his father and mother and kind of individually and then how they met. Um, It was really, really cool. Um, And so he was the oldest of 11 children, five sons, six daughters. So 11 is the number to beat. Um, I've got one. Um, So his father was a stocking manufacturer um, And at the age of 12, um, John Patton took up the trade as well. And he would work, kind of learn the trade while studying. But the thing about John Patton, and a a lot of missionaries are like this, um, is that in his free time, like meals and things like that, he would read and he would study. So the term leaders or readers um, is very much true, and I think it's very true today. If you want to be a leader... um, In this world, you must be a reader. Read the Bible and read good books. Um, Learn to study. um, And I think it's just the same with John Patton as well. So, his upbringing uh, is where I I actually am going to spend a lot of my time because as he's growing up, this is him in his household, and this greatly influenced him and becoming the man who he was. Um, and so I, I'm sitting there, and I'm reading his autobiography of him talking about his father and mother, and there was a lot of dust happening in the room as I was reading, and it would get in my eye and kind of water him up a little bit. It was bad, my wife's like, what's, what's going on? I was like, dust in my eye, it's crazy. But it's really, really good, and you'll understand why um, here in a minute. So um, here is, um, so the next slide um, is this is a little thing from his um, autobiography? So he says it was. This was the sanctuary of that cottage home. He says thither daily and oftentimes a day. Generally after each meal, we saw our father retire and shut to the door, and we children got to understand by a sort of spiritual instinct, for the thing was too sacred to be talked about, that these prayers were being poured out there for us as of old by the high priest within the veil in the most holy place. We occasionally heard the pathetic echoes of a trembling voice pleading as if for life, and we learned to slip out and in imp- and past that door on tiptoe, not to disturb the holy colloquy, which is a conversation, because it's a word I, didn't, I don't normally use, but in this holy conversation. The outside world might not know, but we knew. Whence came that happy light, as of a newborn smile that was always, that always was dawning on my father's face, it was a reflection from the divine presence and the consciousness of which he lived. Never in temple or cathedral, on a mountain or in glen, can I hope to feel that the Lord God is more near, more visibly walking and talking with men than under that humble cottage roof of thatch and oak and wattles. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory or blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet, and hearing still the echoes of those cries to God would hurl back all doubt with the victorious appeal, he walked with God, why may not I? And so, um, John Patton was the oldest of 11 children, um, and his brothers and sisters in there. Um, after each meal, his father would retire and would oftentimes uh, go multiple times a day and just plead to the Lord that he would save his children and that he would um, that his children would be devoted to him. Um, and I just I love the verbiage that he talked about his great love for his father and mother. And we're going to see even more evidence of that. So not only that. In, in the cottage, in, you know, the family cottage, but even in the small village um, where he was, was raised, um, here's another story from their hometown. He said that, I have heard that in long after years, he says that the worst woman in the village of Tortherwald, which is in Scotland where he grew up, then leading an Im- immoral life, but since changed by the grace of God was known to declare that the only thing that kept her from despair and from the hell of the suicide was when in the dark winter night she crept close up underneath my father's window and heard him pleading in family worship that God would convert the sinner from the air of wicked ways and polish him as a jewel for the Redeemer's crown. I felt, said she, that I was a burden on that good man's heart and I knew that God would not disappoint him that thought kept me out of hell, and at last led me to the only Savior. And so here we see John Patton's father um, even pleading for people in his hometown, um, pleading for just that God would save men and women. And it just so happened that this woman, probably cold from the winter, would sneak by the house to, to keep warm and would hear and heard um, John Patton's father praying, and she'd he, she thought that he was praying about her, and eventually one day it saved her. And she was the worst woman in the city. Very sexual and moral life, as he had talked about. Um, and through that prayer, she heard. So how do you apply that to today? I'm um, Pray really loud, I guess, um, you know, in your home or whatever. But, um, you know, even more than that, I think just taking the application of that, how often is it that we as a people pray for God to be at work in unbelievers? Um, Whether it's in our lives um, or whatnot, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But how often is it that we pray that God would save men and women, um, that he would redeem people um, who were around? Um, And he, John Patton's dad, pleaded daily for this. Um, So... John Patton uh, stated that while looking back on his childhood, um, he says, "...I have to bear my testimony that religion was presented to us with a great deal of intellectual freshness, and that it did not repel us but kindled our spiritual interests. The talk which we have have heard were, however genuine, not the make-believe of religious conversation, but the sincere outcome of their own personalities." That perhaps makes all the difference between talk that attracts and talk that drives away. And in speaking of his brothers and sisters growing up, he says, Others must write and say what they will, and as they feel, but so must I. He says, There were 11 of us brought up in a home like that, and never one of the 11, boy or girl, man or woman, has been heard or ever will be heard saying that the Sabbath was dull or wearisome for us. Or suggesting that we have heard or have seen uh, any way more likely than that for making the day of the Lord bright and blessed alike for the parents and for children. But God helped the homes where these things are done by force and not by love. And so, um, can we... Oh, sweet. Um, you got that up there. So, these are just him talking about the Sabbath, which is your Sunday worship, and he says that, you know, in our household, it was never a dull thing. They were excited about Sundays because their father and mother were excited about Sundays, and it just overflowed from that excitement for worshiping the love of Christ into their children, and they were excited. He's like, this Sunday mornings was never dull, ever. And none of our, the, my ten brothers and sisters would think that. Um, and so I love that. So the question I have, I think on the next slide, is kind of, I want to talk about this because I'm curious. So what does your family do for family worship? Or if you're kind of out of your household, maybe growing up you had family worship, or your children are grown and you, know, you don't have as much family worship anymore, but I just kind of want to make this a little bit interactive time. But what does or did your family worship look like growing up? Um, or, what does it look like now? Like, what are just examples? And it has to be, it can be super simple. But what does family worship right now look like in your home? Does anybody have any examples? Last night, we watched a five minute Desire and Dive video uh, based on kind of a the theme of cultural Christianity. Mm hmm. Okay. is that Does that happen like every Saturday or just happen you had some free time Saturday and so you chose to do that? We try to do it every night. Um, it hmm. doesn't always take place, especially uh, when we have the sporting events happening. But yeah. That's the goal. Do it every night. Together. That's cool. Sweet, Mike Schaus. So you try to meet them where they're at, you know, so you can still have that time that's edifying. Does that make sense? hmm Definitely. And that's what we do. Thankfully, my daughter's pretty keen. Uh, she's pretty chill right now, unless she's hungry or sleepy and then she's awful. Uh, she, my, my daughter's five months old, so. Um, but we're, we try uh, every family worship on Wednesday nights, and we just take the psalm that is going to be read aloud, like, this morning, that psalm. We try to read it the Wednesday before. So that's really all we do is we just kind of read a psalm, kind of talk about it a little bit, um, and then sing. And so family worship, like, I think, starting off, just do something. I mean, you can take, you know, you can take the word, uh, you know, a psalm, and just read through it and talk about it. Um, You can take a video and just, you know, probably videos with, you know, younger kids, um, you know, in um, early teenage years, late, you know, 10 years old, whatever. It's probably easier for videos and things like that, more interactive because they're involved with that. So a video is a great idea of just watching a video and kind of talking about it and praying it with it as a family. But I think doing something is great to at least start off and then you can kind of mold it and see what kind of happens. You know, are, are my you know children at the age that they are, um, is that helpful where they're at? Is this engaging to them or is there something maybe different that we can have to make it more of a fun, um, interactive um, type thing? Because... Worship should not be dull. When we come together and we're trying, you know, we exalt Christ and exalt the Lord and just want to talk about Him, um, you know, it should be anything but dull. And I just think of, you know, First Corinthians that says that for the love of Christ compels us or con- controls us. And so I think as as parents um, or any individual, we must before you know evangelism or family worship or whatever. Are we compelled, are we controlled by the love of Christ? Are we so captivated by Christ about how much he loves us um, that it is evident in the things that we talk about, in the way that we speak, and things like that? Um, And so I think in, in hearing about John Patton and just his father, he's praying like multiple times a day, pleading for his children. And this is like every day, and he can't think of one time where his father wasn't like this, or his mother wasn't like this. And I think it's so um, encouraging to me that because of the consistency, he was captivated by the love of Christ. From his personal study in God's Word, he was captivated by it, so it was evident in anyone he had in contact with. Um, And I just love that. So thanks, guys, for sharing. so family worship, I just I think it's extremely important, and it was a great influence in John Patton's life, where as we see from this, it throws him out as a missionary because of the impact that his, his family had on him. And so um, John Patton, so he was awarded um, with receiving one year's training at Free Church Normal Seminary in Glasgow. Um, which was forty miles away from where he grew up, and so his father. Um, so, so he's traveling from his hometown to Glasgow, which is forty miles. And his father, upon leaving, so this is his first born leaving for the first time. His father walks with him for six miles, and they left without a moment of silence between them the entire way. He says that after they hugged and parted with tears, John Patton ran off. As fast as he could, and when about to turn the corner in the road where his father would lose sight of him, he said, I looked back and saw him still standing and head uncovered where I'd left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu." I would round the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then, rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him, and just at that moment I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return. His head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till this form faded from my gaze and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God. And I love this. He says, um, I live, um, I I, I vowed to live and act so never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother that God has given me. And so uh, that just shows kind of his upbringing, and his great love and affection for his, um, for his parents. So after seminary, he worked for some years distributing tracts, teaching at school, laboring in city missionary, um, in a uh, degraded section in Glasgow. Um, and so, um, you know, he worked for some time teaching, preaching, um, that sort of thing. And um, below is an excerpt in his working in Glasgow, He said that happy in my work as I felt and successful by the blessing of God, yet I continued and heard chiefly during my last years in the Divinity Hall, which is where he worked, the wail of the perishing heathen in the South Seas. And I saw that few were caring for them, while I knew that many would be ready to take up the working calton um, and carry it forward, perhaps with more efficiency than myself, without revealing the state of... um, my mind to any person, this was the supreme subject of my daily meditation and prayer. The wail and the claims of the heathen were constantly sounding in my ears. I saw them perishing for lack of knowledge of the true God and his Son Jesus, while the Green Street people uh, had the open Bible and all the means of grace within easy reach, uh, which, if they rejected, they did so willfully and at their own peril. None seemed prepared for the heathen field. Many were capable and ready for call to service. So here he is, and he's he's teaching he's preaching hes he's growing and it's really cool in his autobiography of just God working and bringing men and women he's growing um, this his you know congregation and his classes and things like that, and more and more people are becoming interested, but as he 's doing this, he is in the place of saying that well, these people have the Bible and they, and you know, unbelievers. These people have the Bible openly available to them, churches available, and they're rejecting it. And here are these poor people, these heathen um, in the South Seas that he had read about and heard about um, that didn't have anyone or uh, very few people, missionaries, going to them. And so he's like, you know, if I left in the position that I am right now, there's probably going to be someone very quickly to come to me and say, you know, probably with more efficiency than myself, that they're going to be able to teach and preach where I'm right now. Um, But yet few people are actually going, if any, um, to the South Seas. And so he was praying about it daily. And this is kind of where God is working in him to to go to uh, the New Hebrides. So John Patton resolved that he was to become a missionary overseas through this daily time and praying to the Lord, asking him for guidance. And when it became known that he was preparing to go abroad as a missionary, nearly all were dead against the proposal except one pastor and another fellow student. Um, and he said, um, so John Patton said this about his parents. He says, "My dear father and mother, however, when I consulted them about, hey, can I leave and go to the South Seas, probably to never be seen again?" Um, they characteristically replied that they had long since given me away to the Lord, and in this matter would leave me to God's disposal. Um, and so his parents were like, hey, like we gave you up. You're our firstborn, consecrated to the Lord, and uh, wherever you feel led by the Lord, you go. And so here's a, another story from John Patton. He says, amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was the cannibals. You'll be eaten by cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own Prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. The old gentleman, raising his hands in, in a deprecating attitude, left the room, exclaiming, After that, I have nothing more to say. And so uh, I thought that was really funny, um, just seeing it in john patton 's humor and so although he 's determined to go, so much of the council around him uh, was wanting um, him to stay, and um, so basically he 's influencing a lot of people. a lot of people love him, want him to stay don 't want him to die, never to be seen again cannibals he 's got replies like Mr. Dixon. But he says, Upon meeting so many obstructing influences, I again laid the whole matter before my dear parents, and their reply was to this effect. Here too we feared to bias you, but now we must tell you why we praise God for the decision which you have been led. Your father's heart was set upon being a minister, but other claims forced him to give it up. When you were given to them, your father and mother laid you upon the altar, the firstborn, to be consecrated, if God saw fit, as a missionary of the cross. And if it had been their constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision, and we pray with all our heart that the Lord may accept your offering, long spare you, and give you many souls from the heathen world for your hire. From that moment, every doubt as to my path of duty forever vanished. I saw the hand of God very visibly, not only preparing me, but now leading me to the foreign mission field. And so for that, he is on his way to um, the southern seas. Um, So when he left Glasgow, many of the young men and women of his classes, he had taught, had deep interest in both John Patton and his mission. And though many of them poor, they united their pennies and sixpences and bought web after web of calico, print, and wool, which they themselves shaped and sewed into dresses for the men For the women and kilts and pants for the men on the New Hebrides, year after year, and long after John Patton had left them on the island. And so we have, it's not just John Patton going, but even those staying behind, though they didn't have money that they could give necessarily, but they sewed dresses and kilts for the uh, men and women on the tribes for John Patton. And just in case I forget to mention this, I said I'm going to in a little bit, which I will, but in case I forget, because of lack of time or whatnot, um, this was very important because he would trade with the um, chiefs, with the men there in um, the New Hebrides. And so um, to build those relationships, to be able to buy his land, to build the church and all that stuff, it took these kilts, these dresses, these knives and things like that that were donated. And even while he's there, he's constantly giving it out. Well, more of these kilts, more of these dressers are coming in from ships um, that are made for John Patton and for the, for the missionaries that are, that are helping him out. And so it was very, very important that these things kept coming in and um, led to the success of John Patton. So on April 2nd, 1858... Uh, John Patton married Marianne Robinson, and for a honeymoon, fourteen later, fourteen days later, um, they set set sail from Scotland to the South Pacific, um, and landed on the shore of Anatayam on August thirtieth. So they were on the ship four months and fourteen days. So if you didn't have a honeymoon, or you're, you're mad at your husband uh, for whatever the honeymoon was, just it couldn't be that bad. That they were on a, sh- a ship for four months and fourteen days sailing to anyone, They're sailing away from anyone they ever knew, so can't be that bad. Um, and so, once they were on the New Hebrides, accompanied by uh, Doctor Inglis and a number of most energetic natives, they built a house on Tana in the New Hebrides. So. Here they are, um, and their New Hebrides is a series of islands, and I don't even know the names of all of them. So basically, as you're studying, studying this, reading about him, whatever, there's different islands. There was missionaries on some of the islands, which he kind of met up with, teamed up with, and then they brought him to Tana, which is where he spent the majority of his time um, sharing with the um, uh, different tribes and natives there. Um, but that's kind of there's New Hebrides is a series of islands. Um, so he goes, accompanies with Dr. Inglis and some energetic natives that had already come to know the Lord on another island, and they built a house on Tana in the New Hebrides. So they were, they were able to purchase a site, um, and they called it the station, which would house them and be a site for their church later on. But three months after they had landed, Montana, John Patton, um, well, three months later, John Patton um, and his wife, Mary Ann, they had a baby boy. Unfortunately, they learned too late that the buildings that were built were too close to the shore and exposed them to unwholesome sicknesses. And so, because they were too close to the shore, something about the seas, and I'm not great with any of this stuff, but basically, because of the, the wind and, and kind of the weather, they were too low and it caused illnesses. And so, Mary Ann. Um, John Patton's wife died one month later, and their son died three weeks after that. And John Patton said that this was the greatest sorrow that he had ever experienced, where where he leaves everybody has has his wife and newborn son, and they pass away shortly after arriving um, at New Hebrides. So um, going back, so he's learning about the natives um, on New Hebrides, and this is kind of, so this is the environment That John Patton is arriving at um, and kind of gives you a ballpark of kind of what he's dealing with. So he says that we found the natives in a very excited and unsettled state. Threatened wars kept them in constant terror, war between distant tribes and adjoining villages or nearest neighbors. The chiefs willingly sold sites for houses and appeared to desire missionaries to live among them, but perhaps with an eye to the axes, knives, fishhooks, blankets, clothing, which they got in payment for and hoped for in plunder rather than for any thirst for the gospel. So they didn't really care about the missionaries for the gospel, but just kind of what they brought in, um, as they were all savages and cannibals. They warily... Uh, Declined to promise protection to the mission families and teachers, but they said they would not themselves do any harm, that they could not what the inland people might do. Uh, Not a bad specimen of diplomacy, leaving an open door for any future emergency, and neither better nor worse than the methods by which the civilized European nations make and break their treaties in peace and in war. Such promises meant and were intended to mean nothing. And so, here he is, he's going in um, to the To the tribes there at Tana, and there's multiple tribes on multiple islands, and they were constantly at war with each other. Um, And so it was a very, um, and they were basically, they lied a lot. So they would say that they're their friend, here, you know, give us, you know, trade with us, let's be friends or whatever. But then they would kind of turn their backs and would threaten their lives and whatever. So One story early on um, after one of the many wars that had happened on the island, he says that we were informed that one of the wounded men carried home from the battle had just died and that they had strangled his widow to death that her spirit might accompany him to the other world and be his servant there as she had been here. Now their dead bodies were laid side by side ready to be buried in the sea. Our hearts sank to to the thought of all this happening within earshot and that we knew it not. And so these wars would happen, men would die, and many men, especially the chiefs of these tribes, would have actually multiple wives. So if a chief were to die, and he had 3, 5, 10, 14 wives, they would actually kill the women there, um, and uh, in hopes that because they were the women were his servant here, they'd be a servant in the afterlife. So that's kind of... Um, kind of what the the heathen there on the New Hebrides um, would do. Um, Anytime there was suffering on the island, so if there was hurricanes, if there was sickness, war, famine, etc., the natives constantly blamed the missionaries and because of their worship of the gospel. And so this happened all the time, right, on islands. Hurricanes would come in through, sicknesses would would come in through, and they would constantly um, give... constantly blame, well, this is the worship. So, um, I think, yeah, so they were, um, very, um, deceptive for that reason, because as soon as something would happen, um, they were very skeptical and would, um, kind of lash out at the missionaries. And so, honestly, it almost, it got to be the norm in this autobiography of how many times John Patton was almost killed. Um. I mean, he'd be walking and, you know, like, or wake up in the middle of the night and there'd be 10 people surrounding him trying to get in, and thankfully the dog that he had was barking and would would clear him off, or um, an axe would come, or these stones that they would use to, to kill people um, would come at him, and he would grab them beforehand. Um, all the time he would do this, and he would always give the glory and the sovereignty back to the Lord. He's like, I don't know why these, you know, why I was able to escape death this time except for the lord serving it 's like my work must not be completed yet, and he would always like all throughout the time he would say, "You know what I know i 'm at death here, but God is in control, and He holds time in his hand if it 's my time to go then i 'm going to be gone anyway it doesn 't matter you know um, that god 's going to um, get the glory, regardless, but if my time is not yet done, God is going to spare me, and He would always give the glory back to the Lord, and so Um, so oftentimes, so men, um, and so women were, um, they would, sorry, they would sacrifice people, um, anytime in, in the wars, um, that they had with tribes, that's where the cannibalism came into play, where they would kill their enemy and then they would cook and eat them. And so, um, in 1862, um, John Patton and a few other missionaries escaped for their lives from the New Hebrides and traveled back to Australia. And so in during this time of him um, with the, these few years that he's here for the first time, um, he's able to build a church. He's able to um, have worship, go to these tribes, seeing that, you know, he brings these kilts, these dresses and tra- trays and tries to get um, maintain good relationships with these tribes. As long as there's no sicknesses or illnesses or hurricanes or anything like that, for the most part, it was fine. Um, and then he would um, have, there would there was a few converts there, baptized, you know, missionary or people that came devoted. Um, they started a church, started classes, things like that. Um, and then um, and just before 18—well, I guess it was the year 1862—this massive war broke out on the island, and there was multiple, like, chiefs that were coming against John Patton. And so it was basically left where John Patton like, if I were to stay, it is—like, it's suicide. Like, I know I'm going to be killed— literally, I've got 13 people outside my door every night wanting to kill me. And I narrowly escaped the night before. So he was able to get on a ship and leave. Um, And so they left, traveled to Australia. um, And I had a Hopefully you saw on here the little map of the New Hebrides, but it was kind of right east of Australia. And so they traveled to Australia, and it was there that they were able, able to spread the news about the heathen, tell stories, have some things that they can show them of you know, different acts or tools or things like that from them. And he really kind of it, it got excited or excited some people in Australia about going to um, or supporting him and other missionaries to um, To go back. And so he was able to build support. And all throughout this autobiography, there was multiple stories of just God providing means of him being able to share the gospel, share with people, and funds just kind of came in like extremely easily um, because of the Lord at work. And then from Australia, he went back to Scotland. Um, and it was there that he um, actually got married a second time to a Maggie White Cross. That was in 1864. And then um, once they got married, they arrived back to New Hebrides in 1866, so two years after that. They had 10 children total, um, but only six of them survived um, uh, or made it past infancy. And so the struggle was whenever, because of the sicknesses, their house originally sat too low to the ground. And so these trade winds would come, and and the sicknesses, that's how is John Patton's wife and newborn son had died because they were in, and there was a whole bunch of illnesses. So they actually had to move back on higher ground. So they had already bought the land here, and then they went up, built, or bought some land up a little bit higher. Um, was able to try trade um, with some chiefs and purchase the land, build, and then it was there of learning that up there there was more safety. So that was the first time they were there. Second time they were there, um, so they. Um, John Patton, Maggie, six children went. So John, with the help of his wife and other missionaries, they learned the language. They committed it to writings. He was able to train other missionaries and send them to various islands on the New Hebrides. He was also able to print the entire New Testament into native languages um, by 1899 and sent missionaries to 25 of the 30 islands in the New Hebrides, By the end of his life, so he was all about yes, sharing the gospel and yes, um, you know, building those relationships with the tribes, um, escaping the winds, learning learning things obviously by trial and error. Um, But he also wanted to be a sender, and he just had such a heart for the natives at the New Hebrides. He wanted other missionaries to go, so he was definitely a sender as well while he was going. And so his wife died. In May of 1905 and then John Patton died two years later in 1907 at the age of 82. And so um, that is uh, John Patton's life. So I think I'm almost perfect on time because... So I want to go back. I want to be... I'll offer questions, but I guess any questions about John Patton's life, feel free to talk to me afterwards because I really... I'd love to talk about it. But why is it that we're doing this? We want to be imitators of, or you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We want to take John Patton's life. We want to imitate him and be able to apply that to our lives today because that's, I mean, that's um, how we become more like Jesus. And so I guess application kind of at the end is so So what now that we know John Patton, um, all these things about him going as a missionary, obviously I spent a lot of time in his upbringing because I got really excited about it, um, about family worship and just the influence that his parents had on him. And hopefully he'd be able to encourage us in here to, if you're single, marry a godly man, marry a godly woman, be resolved, raise your children in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. But... Um, here we are. We're in Evansville. We're not in New Hebrides. We're not in Scotland. We're not in Australia. We are in Evansville, Indiana. And we're called by God to make disciples of all nations, just as Jesus did it. And just as people like John Patton had done it. So how do we do that? How is it that we make the disciples of all nations? How do we make disciples where we're at? And so this is kind of where I want, I would love just a discussion for the last couple of minutes before we dismiss, before I pray and dismiss us. But how do we do that? One of the biggest things is we must get around the lost. Um, We must get around the lost of unbelievers. So two questions I have. Number one, if I am single or um, my kids are older and out of the home um, or just kind of in the house, but I have more freedom, right, what are some ways that I can get around unbelievers in hopes of building a relationship with them, sharing the gospel with them, and that sort of thing? What are ways that I can do that? Yes? I the gospel with my Okay. Mm-hmm. yep yep yeah definitely so as you're going so you've got a beautician I've heard a is it an um, optometrist um, you can do your dentist this way um, you can say Hey, you know a lot about teeth, you know a lot about eyes, you know a lot about hair. How much do you know about the one who created those things? Just start with that question and see how it goes from there. That's a great idea. So, as you're going, you can build those relationships. What are some other ways? As you're single or kids are over, you got just more freedom, kids are out of the house, what are some ways? So we had a golf scramble yesterday. So for men who have got some more freedom, there's golf clubs, um, a men's league that's in Evansville um, that you can go and learn more about. If you like to golf, you get around four guys, three other guys and you, and you golf with them for an entire year, um, well, fair weather golfer, so... When the, when the weather's fair, you can do that. So those are some ways that you can. Um, so I know of a, um, a guy who is his neighbor uh, is actually a young Christian. And so um, old, older in age, but a younger Christian. And so they just started taking the Bible. And uh, very simply, they just take like the book of John. They read a chapter and then they talk about it. So if you've got some, maybe some, some men or women in your small group, and some of them are young believers, like, well, how do I do this? How do I go about? It's super simple. You just go, you meet them, and you say, hey. So especially if you're, you have friends, because we all do, hopefully, have friends who claim that they're Christians, but you're pretty sure that they're not, okay? They claim to be Catholic, oh, I'm saved because I'm a Catholic, but you, it's not our job to convince them that they're not saved. Instead, come alongside and be like, hey, you're a Christian, you're a Catholic. It's like, you believe in the Bible? Yeah, me too. Can we just kind of get together and just, you know, maybe just take the book of John, read a chapter and just talk about it. And as you're doing that and discussion is arousing with these, um, with this Bible study that's very simple to do, ask questions. um, You can ask specific questions based on the chapter of ways that you can share the gospel. And let the Holy Spirit, let God convict their hearts and, and determine that they're not saved. It's not our job to do so. Um, so we just want to be a witness. So along with that, so there, that you, there you have single um, men and women or um, kids kind of older out of the house. What about a family? Because there's some of them in here, myself included. What about a family with young kids in the home? Because it's so easy for me as an excuse to be like, man, I don't have time because I've got to, as soon as I get home from work, I've got these little ones I've got to take care of, otherwise my wife or my husband is going to kill me. So what are some ideas of how we, as young families, can influence a loss? What are some ways? Other or kids our just join us our yeah, that's great. And maybe a meal, too. Like, hey, we'll cook lasagna, cook spaghetti. Kids can play with each other. And then, hey, if you don't mind, we kind of do family devotion before dinner, after dinner. Do you mind, you know, saying and joining us for it and just kind of listen and kind of talk about it? It's a great, easy way to be able to influence, um, influence people for the Lord. And that's what we're called to do, right? We've got unbelievers here all around us. And the thing is, is how is it, and just thinking in intentionally for ourselves, how is it that we can intentionally go and make disciples, share the gospel with um, our friends, family that's around? Um, and it's it's so simple. Um, and so, again, I think just one last thing of just reiterating how easy it is to just bring up—if someone is just somewhat interested or claim that they're a Christian or a Catholic— I love what Ernie told me. He's you know anytime he had someone who was Catholic, you know say hey do you believe in God or anything? He's like oh yeah I'm Catholic. His response was are you a saved Catholic? Um, I actually used that when I was playing basketball. This was probably like six months ago to a younger guy. He said he was Catholic. I was like are you a saved Catholic? And he's like, "Uh, I mean I was I was confirmed, and just and I left and you know he still around a little bit. So hopefully God's going to use that. But that's the thing is, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. It was like, are you a saved Christian? Are you a saved Catholic? Because there needs to be a point in time because too many times religion is just a tradition. Like, well, I was born this way. I was born Catholic. Like, yeah, I was baptized when I was a baby. I'm saved. And then the answer to that is, well, then why did Jesus have to die? Why? If you're saved by your religion or whatever, why did Jesus have to die? And ask that question and see what they say. Well, he died for our sins. It's like, but you don't need him because you got this other stuff. So easy routes, easy questions to go to share the gospel. But I'll just encourage you as you're here in Evansville, how can you be an influence? John Patton, you're set, you've learned about him hopefully a little bit today. And just being compelled by Christ and his love, how can of an overflow of that love can I Witness to other people who I'm around, and whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're you know uh, widowed, whatever. It's like we can be a witness and just share with the world around you how wonderful Jesus is, and let that permeate, and let let God use that to use His Holy Spirit um, in a way that's um, to save men and women. So, nine fifty doesn't mean I need to cut out, right? Yeah, okay. Um, sorry, I didn't have like opportunity for questions and things like that, but come talk to me afterwards. If you've got questions, little stuff, I'm sure I missed a whole bunch of stuff, but if you guys want to borrow the book too, it's five, 500 and some odd pages. It was a lot, but it was really good. If you guys want to borrow that too, you can. So let me pray and then we will dismiss. <clears throat> Heavenly father, God, thank you for, um, your spirit at work in men and women. God, we see it in John Patton's life and we can see it in men and women before me today, how greatly uh, I am encouraged by these men and women um, who I get to pray with. And so, God, I just pray that you would work in our hearts. God, help us first and foremost to love Christ more. If we are feel cold in our hearts God, if we have sin in our lives that we can't seem to to get a grip on and to fight and um, we feel like we're all alone, Lord, I pray that you would be merciful to us. God, would you um, cause um, that flame of Christ and his love for us, compel us and control us to repent and to get up and press on toward the prize of the upper calling of God in Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you for John Patton. And I just pray that you help us as believers to be better witnesses, to evangelize and to share the lost as the heathen um, God in New Hebrides had no hope um, and still many of them don't. Lord, we have unbelievers around us who have no hope. Help us to be a light and to just share the love of Christ with our neighbor in hopes of pleasing um, you and, and God that you can use that to save them for eternity. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.